Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. And we're live. It's the first show for 2021, 10.30 West Coast, 1.30 East Coast, 6.30 Australian Eastern Standard Time, 6.30 PM UTC. I think that could be right. That could be wrong. I missed you guys so much. How you doing? I missed you too. Yeah, that felt like a long two-week layoff, didn't it? We like had two months. We did fifty-one shows last year, and we only missed the one between Christmas and New Year's. So I think that that was uh, that that might be the most we ever do. Yeah, because we're down. dedicated. That was a Cal Ripken performance there. Toronto in what's up, New Jersey? How's everybody doing? Cincy, you, Samson, India, Edmonton. All right. Everybody's in the house. What are we talking about today, gents? What uh, what uplifting topics for the brand new year are we going to be talking about? <laughs> oh boy. Where are you, JT? What do you got? Uh, I've got a little segment prepared on the challenger disaster and base rates that I'm hoping I'll kind of tie back into some recent conversations. We'll see. Might be might be a slow start to the year. <laughs> Sounds bullish to me. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Big Bill? Uh, I don't know. I'll probably piggyback on Jake's. I was thinking of uh, waxing poetic on uh, this thread yesterday that Wall Street dropout tagged us in. Yeah, that was a good thread. Uh, and I'll be talking about Jeremy Grantham's got a new note out. You'd be surprised to hear that he's bearish. Uh, <laughs> he's planted the flag. He said it's weeks or months. So um, he says it's one of the great bubbles of our time. So we'll be talking about that, I guess, right after this. Right after these messages, no, there are no messages. <laughs> does he? Uh, does he not know about rates, bro? Rates, bro. Yeah, I don't know. Someone yeah. should ask him. Or index melt up, or Fed put all the other theses that everyone hangs their hat on. Rates, bro. He. Uh, do you want to? Do you want to do GMO? First? You want to do Jeremy's thing first? So yeah, let's do that. Yeah. So uh, it's called uh, Waiting for the Last Dance, uh, referencing the MJ documentary, which was excellent. Um, He says that uh, all of the quantitative signs are there. So the overvaluation, like we've just had overvaluation for, for a long period now, so overvaluation doesn't count for much. But he says the qualitative signs are there, all of the speculation, markets rocketing up, you know, you get that ramp at the last stage of the ball um, and then you get a lot of retail participation a lot of new issuance including the SPACs the, all of the new IPOs do very well and uh, he says it's one of the great bubbles of our time so 1929, 2000, 2007 and uh, 2021 I guess um, I, I enjoyed the piece I don't know that's that different from anything else that he's been saying I like I love reading Hussman too. I don't know that it, you know. It's every time I read Hussman, I'm like, oh, "Holy shit!" And then I then I uh, <laughs> go back and look at some of the other ones, and I I realize it's the same message. I don't think it's wrong. I just all I would say is that um, 
we, the market is extremely expensive. There's no question about that. Rates are pinned really low, so there's no there's nothing else. There is no other alternative. Um, we're at expensive on the cyclically adjusted PEs, expensive on market you know market cap to GNP, Tobin's Q. All of those sort of measures are really expensive. Um, the big difference, uh, I think, the only thing to bear in mind really is that uh, you know Japan got a lot more expensive before it finally collapsed and ruined uh, a generation or two of investors. So you can go from 30 times Cape to 100 times Cape. China did the same thing. Uh, you can get to 100 times Cape. I think if you're hanging your hat on that, then good luck to you. But uh, <laughs> I think that's the market a, is expensive. A dangerous game. But Bill and I, you know, we all have, a, we all have different opinions. Bill, Bill's a, a fan of the, the third or fourth inning. What inning are we in yeah, where today, are, Bill? Where are we at? I don't know. We're 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 still playing ball. <laughs> are the starters still in, or are we into the bullpen yet? Uh, I think I think the starters are still in. Mm. Ouch! I, What's the pitch count? The the only other thing that I would say, I don't know, like forty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they've been pitching a good game. Yeah, no hitter. Uh, do you, do you think it's helpful? To focus on this kind of stuff like do you think this is do you think it's useful not really <sighs> i mean i'll tell you i'll tell you what i do question. think it's useful at i was looking at my allocation and the way that stocks have run i am way over allocated right now to stocks and relative to what like i'd like to be right and it is not easy to reduce risk right now for me, like emotionally. And, you know, risk management probably shouldn't feel very easy. Uh, but that's probably when you should be doing it. Um, so, I don't know. The thought I always have is when you look at 2000, if you were thinking about the level of the market, you were out. And that was a bad decision if you're a value guy because you had two of the best years that you could have possibly had. So, yeah. I, I think these are always interesting. I like reading them. And I'm a fan of base rates like i think it's worth remembering what is going on around you but i also think that it's not helpful when you're constructing a portfolio like if i find if if the market is nosebleed expensive but you find you know you find microsoft trading on a 10 percent free cash flow yield i'll just buy that all day long for you know i'll i'll fill a portfolio full of that so i don't i don't know that it's that useful but i i, I like reading them because i because it does sort of reinforce my uh, bias that the market is Priors. expensive. Yeah, it reinforces my price. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think you're right. You're pointing out the important thing is that you can have a very expensive market, but a very rich opportunity set still of hunting ground for whatever your kind of approach is. Um, so maybe not worrying so much about the macro, although they tend to kind of go together, right? Like really cheap markets when rates are high, when valuations are low, when sentiment is low, when profit margins are low. That's where you get a, you know, 10, 15 year bull market setup. And I just, I, I don't see that right now. Like it seems like we're the opposite of all of those. So I don't quite understand how people get to the like roaring 20s kind of thesis. Um, I can get you but, to the, which what what part of the Roaring Twenties we had. 
That might be a well, better. Well, the part where what like, year we're going to have a decade of just re- yeah, is it nineteen? Not twenty one. It's twenty. It's twenty twenty eight or twenty nine. Right now, well, that's what. But no, but people are acting like it's like twenty three or something, right. and that we're going to have mostly the rest of the decade as like all aboard. Like here comes another generational bull market, and um, I'm a little pessimistic about that. But but if there is a value opportunity there, like boy, you don't want to miss it sucking your thumb because you're macro calling right well one of the things that i think is useful is if you're thinking about if you have a marginal opportunity where it like it meets all of the criteria that you like but it's just a little bit expensive i mean a little bit expensive might be okay but like this is the thing that i think traps all investors can trap value investors too you just keep on like just shifting your what you're prepared to accept just so you can get that marginal opportunity into your portfolio and then you find that you know you got a, a good holding in the portfolio right before you go over the edge and then you just think to yourself if i just been if i just stayed disciplined this wouldn't have happened i mean that's what in 2000 that's what i thought in 2007 8 9 if i just there was stuff that i was trying to sweep into the portfolio in 2006 and 7 that if i had just been a little bit more disciplined at the time, I wouldn't have had it in there and I would have had a higher cash holding because I just wouldn't have been able to find the opportunities. Yeah. yeah. Lower your standards just like a little bit by bit. Discount rate. Just just leak that discount rate down a little bit. 10%, 9%, 8%, 7%. Probably okay. Growth rate. Oh, that's probably... Ten percent now. Well, that's that might be a good segue for uh, Wall Street dropout. You want to do that? Want to do that thread? Yeah, go for it, Bill. Oh me? Uh, I'm not ready. <laughs> You're not in the mood. Well, you get in the mood. Bill's got Bill's I'm got ready. alleged Jake, alleged Joe. suspected COVID. So he's he's uh, he's playing hurt today. We appreciate it. I don't know that I I don't know that it's COVID, but yeah, I don't feel great. Um, I guarantee Jake, why don't de- you go and then, uh, for that? <laughs> why don't you go and then I'll, I'll pull this thread up. All right, that's good. It'll be a good transition anyway. I was um, just looking at Comcast as you were speaking, and like that's a seven percent free cash flow yield. You know, looking back, like I don't know. I mean, in what world does that not make sense? That's not like where the craziness is, in my opinion. And I think that's what you're saying, right? Like, there's a lot of stuff that. I think you can look at right now and say, I could own this and be okay. Um, But, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I don't think people are going to do very well in. But I might be wrong. All that shit I've been wrong on forever. So I don't know why anyone would care what I have to say. I think that's a, a, applies to all three of us. So that's a good place to (laughs) wrap it up. (laughs) See you next week. All right. Yeah. See you next week. (laughs) And done. So, all right, this this little segment, we're going to start out with playing a little game. And uh, I'm springing this on you guys. I probably should have given you some fair warnings. You could think about it. But if you had to choose any three people, real people, not fictional characters, to get together and just have a lunch with, what would who would your three be? I'm going to take Buff Dog. Okay. Yeah, the D.O. double. I'll tell you who I'm going to take. All right. I'm going to take Buff Dog. I'm going to take Sun Tzu. Mm. And I've got one more. I'm not going to mention him because he's going in the book right now, but it's the one thing I want to hold back. But uh, I'll, I'll think of, a, I'll think of a, a third. What about you, Billy? 
well, it's got to be the buff dog, and he's got to the mung's got to be there too. Um, you probably need a drinker, right? You need someone who can. You can't have two blokes drinking yeah. cokes. It's not going to be much fun. You need someone who's going to stir the drink a little bit there. <laughs> I don't know. I think you get you get Munger alone. I think that he would stir some drinks. I mean, you know, not drink himself, but I think he'd get it pretty heated. Um, man, I don't know who the other one would. Probably Paul Halal. Mm, interesting. That's a off the beaten path selection. Yeah. I like it. Well, I like Paul. Who are yours, JT? Who are you going? So I have uh, Munger, and then Andrew Carnegie, and then. My third one is Richard Feynman. Oh yeah, that's a good selection. So, that's much more thoughtful than, than that. <laughs> well, that you know, I thought about it. I had two weeks to figure this out. Right? Um, but it actually does bring up another point. I don't know if you guys do this, but I think it's like a really healthy and interesting practice um, is to imagine that you have a little board of directors at your disposal at all times, and it's made up of those kind of guys. And you could just sort of put yourself and imagine, like, what would they say about this decision that I'm about to make? You know, what would they how, you know, evaluating my behavior or my actions, my my thoughts, my decisions against this board of directors of of people who you've studied enough to where you have a pretty good idea what they might say about that. And I think that's actually a, a kind of an interesting hack to keep yourself centered. Yeah, that that's I, I in constructing a discretionary portfolio, I got I got a little uh, picture of Buffett with what would what would Warren do? Because I think that if you've got to take the idea and pitch it to him, he's going to tell you that's a dog shit idea. You know why that's already not going to work. So, don't, so stop so stop worrying about it. Even if you miss out, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Probably he'd be a little bit kinder than that. Well, it depends. <laughs> yeah. All right. So as a transition to that, um, Richard Feynman, who... Uh, I think there's a new book out actually. I don't know if it's new, but I'm going to read it here soon. And it's a, it's about all, it's like takes all of his personal letters and arranges them. And I'm really looking forward to reading that. Uh, but there's, if you haven't already read like his autobiography, uh, surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman. It's a terrific read. Check it out. Uh, he's just such an iconoclastic character and like, just talk about just living your life by your own inner scorecard and, you know, focusing on what matters to you and who gives a shit about what anyone else thinks. Like he's so good at that. The the thing that I remember from the, the thing that I took away from it is really like he's clearly I'm not he's clearly a genius. That that's not that's not the point. It's just that how curious he is. He just keeps on going until a problem is pulled apart. He just won't stop. If there's something he doesn't understand, he just keeps on drilling on it until he resolved it one way or the other. It's just the way he describes it, it doesn't seem that he's that kind of brilliant it just seems that he's really really curious but at some point i guess you got to acknowledge that it is brilliance and not just curiosity but it seemed to me that curiosity was the defining factor yeah that's a i couldn't agree more with that observation six whys right just keep asking why Hmm. it's funny how superficial most answers are that might have been no not wives no (laughs) you keep asking your wife why you might get more than one (laughs) yeah or less than one. Yeah, that's right. So the the so where I, where we'll keep going with this is that uh, I was reading through his he has a report on the Challenger disaster and he was part of a commission that was trying to untangle like what went wrong there and famously he at the, at the here at one of the hearings 
he pulls out like a little rubber o-ring that was part of the problem and like puts it into some ice water and then like shows everyone how brittle it it became and like that was one of the key things why the booster blew up was because the temperature was outside of the normal range and this this rocket exploded right so um so what's interesting in his appendix to this report is that he's talking about like assessing base rates and he's you know he's asking the management of NASA what does he think that the odds of, of failure or success are of, of any individual given mission? And they're saying like one in a hundred thousand um, would be a failure, like a total loss. Uh, and then the engineers are saying like one in a hundred. And he's trying to figure out like, well, how would you get to one in a hundred thousand? Right. Because that would imply that you could launch a shuttle every single day for 300 years and not have a disaster. Right. Like expected. Um, whereas like, you know, their, their actual historical base rate at that point was they had done around 2,900 flights and 121 of them had failed. So that's like a one in 25 percentage, right? So to go from one in 25 base rate to, you know, one in a hundred for the engineers to one in a hundred thousand for the management, like he was pretty pessimistic on management and like how they were, were basically fooling themselves or at least like being blind to what the true base rates of failure were. Was that specific to the O-ring? No. Or was that for the whole the shuttle? NASA, yeah, NASA launches in it's, general. It's one of, the, one of the things I remember from my business economics class in uh, my undergraduate degree was that Toyota figured out that basically they had, when they built the cars, they had some parts that were very, this is a while ago now, I don't know how they do it now. This is not a comment on Toyota. But the, they, when they built the cars, they had some parts that were very, very robust and some parts that were very fragile. And they figured out that you, you could take some of the robustness away from the, 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 the parts that lasted forever and then concentrate more on the fragile parts so that the whole car became, you know, it was all roughly going to fall apart at the same time. So they could, where you save some money on that part because the problem with them is that you only need one part to fail for the whole thing to fail so it's not like it's all in sequence it's not in it's not in parallel you don't get there's no safe fail there's there's only one part fails everything fails yeah that makes sense so so to tie this back in with uh you know this podcast and what we like to talk about you know as we're assessing you know and to tie it actually back to a wall street dropouts uh thread that tagged us the question is really like, is it different this time when it comes to like digitization and companies that are have have had a tremendous amount of acceleration of the future kind of pulled forward through because of covid uh, dynamics. And so, like, is it different this time? Because sometimes it is different. Right. I mean, I, that's to say it's never different, I think is wrong, but to say it's like always different is also wrong. So how do we sort of figure out what's the actual base rate somewhere in between these two extremes that people tend to live in? Um, yeah, so what, the, the, the question is, what are we seeking to do? It's not so much that we have this known flight path for the revenue earnings and so so on, and we're trying to handicap that back to where we are today. We've had this step change, and now we have to try and figure out how do you then interpret what that means for the step change into the future, do we assume that we're going to have that kind of gain every year or that the gain is stable and going to keep on growing from that level or that we're at some point going to go back to 
the rate that we had before, which might mean that we have some stall period for a while. And this is not talking about prices. This is just talking about the underlying business economics, right? Just so we... Correct. Yeah. So, and, and the other thing too is the sort of Brian Arthur's observation from the late 90s about returns to scale for businesses, like network effects, um, the digitization kind of winner-take-all uh, economics that may exist in a lot of these companies, is that something, like, is this a completely new game that we're playing now because of that dynamic? Or can we look and see other kind of technological revolutions to get some kind of inference into a Bayesian update of our probabilities? So that's what I'm trying to capture here. I thought you were going to tell me the answer. I was really excited for a moment there. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Uh, no, 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 hold on. There's more coming. Your, more clues coming. Keep your panties on. <laughs> uh, so this then led me to going back and revisiting my notes on Carlotta Perez's uh, technological revolutions and what do those tend to look like, right? And she has it divided up into there's a, a installation phase that starts out with what she calls eruption and then it moves up this curve towards frenzy, and then there's kind of a stall period, and then it it kind of flattens out into an S, like, uh, and it, the next two, the next phase is like called deployment, and you get like synergy, and then finally maturity, right? And then you get sort of the next revolution starts underneath that. So when we look back at, uh, the, she has five technological revolutions, and you have the 19 or 1780s ish. These are these are according to her. Um, you have like factories, canals, and machines is this first industrial revolution, technological revolution wave. And then 1840s, we get steam and coal and rail waves, and we get the same thing. And by the way, like we see this slow adoption that then turns into a frenzy, a bubble, the bubble pops, everyone actually starts using, you know, it becomes more widespread diffusion of the, the technology, and then it just becomes old hat again, right? Uh, and then so after that was 1870s with steel, heavy engineering, bridges, things like that. And then we have 1910s, 20s uh, was like oil and cars and radios, televisions, mass production. Uh, and then, you know, 1970s, she marks as the the information revolution, right, where we get computers, we get uh, technology in the information space. So. If we assume it was like 1970s or 80s and she like each one of these like the the deployment period or installation period is she says typically 20 to 30 years. So I'm not sure exactly how to like map onto where we are today with when did the technological this particular revolution start. If it's the 70s or 80s then we're already like 40 50 years into this, right? Which would put you towards the top like back half installation phase of the of the s curve that she would say or are we on the that frenzy part where we're about to get the layover into the s uh and, and get more into the into the uh deployment phase in which case you know all this stuff starts working better but you don't get the same kind of financialization of it as you do in the early phases when everyone is hot on it and like you can't put money into it fast enough, right? Like that's sort of what the hallmarks of these things. So just some some food for thought on, uh, you know, maybe helps us tell us a little bit what inning we're in. If you're trying to project out 
you know, how the returns to scale these businesses, do we have 20 or 30 years more of this inst- this kind of phase for the for an information revolution? Or is it like, are we towards the back end of it? And there's something else that's like waiting behind it. Um, and we're, it's not going to be as good. I don't know. I, I'm not sure what the answer is to that. But I think it's kind of an interesting way to frame the problem and think through it. There's clearly a big difference between, I mean, the the the, the web is a big difference to just having a personal computer. I, I grew up in an era where you just had personal computers on your desk and didn't attach to the internet. And I just can't imagine now what you do with a personal computer that didn't attach <laughs> to the internet. Solitaire. Yeah, it's just, it's a useless machine. It's got like a word processor on it. It's like a typewriter or something like that. So, I, you know, I guess it doesn't really, I think that this one probably begins when, there's everybody connecting to the internet and then or connecting so over the web would you say like would be a start for it late 1990s yeah okay because i don't know that the as as you know the computer the processing power is just going up it's still going up it's like it goes up a thousand times over five years it'll go up a thousand times over the next five years i saw that last year so it's probably you know we're one year into the thousand over, but it's, i think it persists right and then um as the processing power goes up the computers can do much more interesting things that we're all networked. We're all getting the companies are getting businesses are getting better at using the networks for various different things. Carvana. I'm surprised that, you know, Carvana just seems to me to be such an obvious idea. It's surprising that it's kind of taken to this point to get it done. I guess the problem is that you need, there's a lot of backend infrastructure on something like Carvana. You need someone to come and pick up the car, take it back, detail it, turn it around, deliver the car to somebody else, inspect it and do all those sort of things, which, you know, that's that sounds more expensive than making the customer drive it down to the lot. Yeah, especially when you have a time value on your money. Right, and they, but they charge you a delivery fee. So I, I went, I plugged, my, I plugged my, my car into it to see what kind of deal I could get. Pretty good deal, but you get, it was like a $500 delivery fee, something like that. Yeah. I mean, they, there's a lot of back-end logistics to that, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I have, like, I do think that the base rates of growth are going to be much bigger for longer on these companies that are growing like a weed. I mean, I don't think, I think that historically, if you look at, like, the total set of companies, uh, the there was a greater probability of coming up with a substitute product, right? So, like, I don't know how different is a Camry than a Taurus or whatever, like, at its core. I don't think it really matters. They're all very um, similar, right? Yeah. And I, so, okay. So, Toyota is like leading, but then they get caught. Um, I do think that there's sufficient evidence to infer that software, no matter how much people bitch about it, tends to stick a lot more than people may think it does. I mean, for instance, like Excel is still around and ubiquitous and everybody bitches about Salesforce as a product, but their distribution and tie-in has worked, right? So it's not like a superior product came in and beat them. Um, On the other hand, like, you know, if you extrapolate it into like... uh, I don't know, like Pinterest or Etsy or like any of these sort of marketplace type attention aggregation machines. Like I I I just don't get what makes that any different than a retailer. Like you have a set of goods, you're trying to accumulate attention. You 
compete on whether or not people can find your goods or, or goods that you know they like in your store. Uh, your store happens to be on the internet. Um, but like, you know, think about like our podcast, right? We're not, we're platform agnostic. And I, and I mean, you know, Hey, Eck, if you want to pay us holler, cause Google tries to demonetize us a lot and, uh, we'll sell out for like 40 times, $6 of revenue. So the, the fact that you bring said the that big bucks here, the, the fact that I said that you might have, you've got alleged COVID probably means that this yeah, one gets demonetized. Out. Yeah, we're not getting shit. And they're probably going to load it with like 50 ads on top of that. That's right. To drive everybody. So I, I guess that like I I do think that some of these things will stick. Um, I like, uh, but I just, I don't know. Some of these other things, like I, why is why is one platform too much different from another? I know that somebody would say, well, they've invested and they bought all, you know, they've got the attention and they've got the consumer habit and all that. Like, yeah, so does QVC. The difference is like QVC generates a ton of cash and, you know, like a- any knock that people have on QVC, I think sort of could apply to some of these other things, except, yeah, they're on the Internet, so they feel safer. But like, I don't know, can another marketplace sort of pop up and start to buy attention if people have patient enough capital? Like that doesn't seem like the, or they mo- get the some hardest killer piece of content. Right. That's that's always been my argument that the, the pipes, are, the pipes and. The pipes always start out being valuable. They always attract a lot of attention, but then after a while, it becomes it, it migrates back to the content, because people, if they want that particular show, for example, in a like in a Netflix, Disney Plus, HBO, you know, and so on and so on kind of world, they're going to watch that that platform for that show. So the money and the content providers know that. The problem is for content, it's a real hit or miss business. If you hit, it's huge. You do really well, but it's not. It's not easy. It's not a replicable kind of process, you know. That Game of Thrones, maybe that could have kept on going on for a few more years, but it was getting a little bit long in the tooth. Uh, this long in the dragon tooth. Value after hours, you know. <laughs> the hit yeah, machine. We had a good run. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I guess I I don't know why I think of those things as a distinction, but that was one of the pushbacks that I got after our podcast, Toby, was people were like, you know, how you view Netflix is how a lot of people view software companies. And this damn the torpedoes attitude is what they're trying to accomplish so that they get the network effects and the the login or, or the lock in. Um, what's his name? Not not boring, I think, is is a sub stack that I subscribe to. Like he wrote this great like just thrashing of build dot com today. He was like, this product sucks. Like, can we just kill this thing before it becomes like so ingrained in all of our lives that, you know, I can't get away from it. I don't know what it is. It's some it's a twelve billion dollar company because why the hell not? What's it do? (laughs) Uh, Like AR and your working capital and stuff like that. So, I I mean, I understand. I I had this idea that I'm sure it'll be pitched as a fintech because it's got insight and data into who who pays and when and we can factor receivables as if that's a some novel concept that a bank can't do better with lower cost of funds but i digress it does kind of make sense right like i've got lots of expenses that come in that are one-time expenses that are you know material over the course of you know in the business are material over the course of the year and i when i'm working out what my break even is i assume that all of that is averaged over the year but it's not in reality like on a cash flow basis sometimes some months you got to write a really big check sometimes you don't have to write much of a check at all and it feels like it 
pretty profitable month, but on average, it's not. It's all break even. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it would be good. Like I, I, if you could factor it, that'd be good. Yeah. Well, I mean, businesses that are credit worthy can factor it. That's what banks do. Uh, right. You get a, you get an accounts receivable line and you can get 85% of it and you can pay LIBOR plus 125 and you can get your money today. Uh, you know, there's a reason a lot of small businesses don't. So we'll see whether or not the data can overcome that hurdle. You're just building in a cost, but, another cost into your business, right? You just got to carry that. Now you got to carry that all year long. Yeah. The thing I don't understand about like these fintech stories is like everybody's, oh, they got the data. And like I read something today that Uber is going to start funding drivers. Like why does everything have to be a bank? I thought these were high roic businesses. Like now you want to get into yeah, lending. Zillow, okay. Buying houses. Yeah. Like whatever. I, I guess that makes sense. I Last I checked, the lending and collecting of money was a crappy business that investors no longer care about. But somehow you attach it to a tech product and it's genius. Dot com. Oh, my God. Yeah. So stupid. Why is, why, is, why is buying and selling houses such a pain in this country? Why, why is there a 6% rip every time you want to do that? That seems crazy to me. It is crazy. The realtors, man, they won't. You know, I tried to use Redfin to buy a house. They and like the realtors. Yeah, but they won't see you. Uh, like the real the realtors will duck you uh, if they, they know, know that a Redfin right. agent is coming, right? Because they're trying to protect their profit pool. That kind of matters if you want, like, you know how how we went through selling our house was a pocket listing in in the city that I lived in, and like you know the Redfin agent never got a look. That yeah. matters. But that is, that's just protectionism. That that can't really last that long, can it? Like I, I, get, I kind of get the feeling that the dam is breaking now. You got Zillow in there buying and selling, and the other, the Chamath IPOB. What what's that called now? I don't know. That dude was talking about getting into mining last night. I saw that. All, that these, all these fucking SaaS guys. They're like, oh my god, yeah. What mines are we gonna? Okay, it's all very first it. principles. Go, enjoy value investing, guys. Have fun. There doesn't seem to have been a lot of innovation in the mining space. Yeah. That's right. Didn't didn't realize that uh, the mining guys didn't understand mining. Leave it to a software guy to figure it out. Okay. Yeah, that'll be funny. The, if well, only they had hired the right consultants. I, I got I got blown up on Twitter because I I got I got an offer for the house that was clearly meant for somebody else. I didn't realize you, you didn't get these things unsolicited. It came to me unsolicited, and and I when I and the 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 city that I live in, there's another city with an identical name in Arizona. And so the California, the houses in the California city are a little bit more expensive than the houses in the Arizona city of the same name. I didn't realize you had to request it yourself. So mine just showed up and I thought, this is so, this, this makes sense to me that, you know, they're about to go public. They're doing a big push to let everybody know that they're here. So they're just doing these mail outs to everybody with like, here's our best guess of what your house is worth. Do you want to come and like, just as like a, uh, a teaser to get you to go onto their site and then they're going to hit you with all these other things. But I was interested because I knew that the IPO was coming up. So I sort of, I participated a bit, but then they reached out behind the scenes and I, I didn't ever hear what the end of it was, but I had to share with them all of the, the details about myself, which is a typical Silicon Valley transaction where I shared a whole lot of information with them and got nothing back in return. So thanks very much for that. But whatever that thing is, like they're trying to make a market. I don't know if they're doing any, you know, you want to warehouse a whole lot of houses at the top of the market? You want to stick that in your inventory? I mean, look, in March it would have looked really bad, but now everybody got bailed out, right? So maybe it's not such a bad strategy. 
when I saw the offer, I went straight on their site to go and look at things for to buy. I was like, if they're going to be out by this much, I'll buy something. But no. I mean, you get screwed in that model in a in a liquidity crisis, That's right? True. Because. To, but, you, you know, I don't know. Are we done with liquidity crises? Maybe. That's the kind of thing you say right before you get a liquidity crisis. Yeah, that's – I mean, maybe I, – I, yeah, I don't disagree. I mean, you know, it's it's interesting to look at Carvana. I mean, you know, that that company was close to the brink and, you know, now it's uh, darling and it makes sense. I mean, the facts changed, but uh, I don't know. Do you think that the – are they – I think they're probably being a little bit more generous than they would otherwise be on both sides of that transaction, right? They're trying to they, their margin is squeezed a little bit. Uh, Joe Frankenfeld will have a have a view on this probably. I think he probably agreed yeah. on our podcast, but that they do see, they do seem to be like encouraging people to go to the site to use it. I thought that the offer yeah. for the car was pretty generous. I mean, I I guess that going back to the base rate discussion is like you know if the new method of business is basically underpriced things and just like go crazy to get all these network effects going and then like i i guess the thing that i get thinking about is if all these valuations are justified what does that mean for competition in capitalism like it seems to me that you're going to end up with a lot of winner take all and if that's the case i don't know how i mean what is what happens to labor i don't know I, I don't know. It looks to me like there's a lot well, of competition let's... out there, though. Like that, you can start one of these things up and get a massive valuation, raise money on it. That, well, that's you competition, can't because right? once they once they hit scale, then the then you got to go pitch. We're going to be underscaled, and we're going to have to build out secondary infrastructure, and they're going to cut their price. Has anything hit but scale like, yet? Well, no. It's all in the future. I mean, but the, yeah, but that's the whole point, right? Like it's that's the uh, that's the ethos that everybody's okay investing under. So I mean, that does change the game and the strategy that you run. Does that make you want to pay super high multiples for it? I mean, I, this is the this is the, the the conundrum that I have, right? So all of these things are unprofitable because they're we're we're pricing them on where they're going to get to once they lock in in the future. But well, everything they're is overspending. Let's be somewhat generous. They're overspending on SGNA because they're they're expanding, right? Plus acquisitions. So, Plus acquisitions. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I'm just saying, let's just you know, we'll be charitable. They're, they're overspending. You don't have to specify where it's going. Plus stock-based okay. compensation. Yeah. Okay. I didn't mean to cut you off, Toby. I'm sorry. No, no, no. You're fine. I, was, I think I probably cut you off. I, I, that was just. No, no, you didn't. I cut you off. Somebody's I insist. Mad. I insist. That's why I like you guys. <laughs> well, let's think about a little no, wait, bit like Toby some other revolution. You said you don't want to okay, pay. Go no, 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 no. Uh, go, 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 go. J- JT. Go. Ah, son of you ruined it again, Bill. Uh, yeah, I mean, so I, like just thinking about other revolutions and like, let's just take railroads, for instance. I mean, talk about changing the world in a way that like how your competition before that was like putting it on a wagon and like a horse pulling it across the country. And now you can move it at a scale that was just like the the energy required per pound of movement and distance was just like a complete phase change right and that's become ho-hum eventually right like eventually terrible industry for a long long time but you had some regulation in there and but to be fair it's still the most efficient way of doing it we still haven't got any haven't got any better than airplanes as a thing of like moving freight now like okay not as energy efficient but like 
all of a sudden the world just gets incredibly smaller. Like that is a phase change of amazing proportions to changing the world of, of humanity. And how do we, how do we exist? I don't feel the same kind of like awe at like, an oh, app you're being that a I Luddite. can hold on an no. app where I can like sell my Jordans oh, on it or something. Right. Like such a hater. I could buy a partial interest in a, in an old Camaro. Uh, like what, hater, this isn't what about... fucking changing the world. But not all. the Michael Jordan card, man. It's scarce. There never will be another never card print another printed one. on cardboard that people value. You need fractional interest in that card. Okay, but, but like, is that is you? I all these other things were so amazing and became humdrum. Why is it so hard to imagine that that these amazing things also don't become humdrum at some scale? Uh, it's not, but I, I guess that so where where I think there's some legitimacy in the argument, and and so first thing you touched on is airplanes. So a sufficient condition is not that there is a du like a duopoly, right? Because if that was a sufficient condition, Boeing and Airbus would print cash all day, and they don't. So that does not guarantee economic profits that are outsized. So then I get to like Dorsey's, well, it's really like a relative scale advantage that you need to look at, right? Like if the first player is way bigger than the second and third, that's where the economics can accrue. Um, and that's where I do understand some of this, like really go nuts and build scale today, because if you can shower people in the stock comp and you can get all the, you know, the high, the best engineers, then maybe you can actually create this network effect where you are truly the biggest and no one can penetrate. I mean, I guess that I guess that can work. Um, I just don't have the skills to know when and where and how much to pay. I just so don't. back to our base rates, I think it's totally possible that there's lots of those in there, but it's not all of these. And they're priced as if they're all going to get it and win. And that, I think, is going against the base rate that you could probably expect. You think it's going to be like DC's DC versus Avengers when the Tams collide? Gee, I hope there's some well, there more has to be. superhero movies this year. I haven't seen enough of those. Yeah, right. You'll get them. Disney's going to crank them out. Don't you worry. Just just to go back to the uh, the O-ring. I don't know if you... Do you guys remember... Have you read the James Sarawiki book, uh, the, the Wisdom of Crowds? I think they talk in there... I think he talks about the... You know, I think it's the first story in the book. When the when the disaster occurred, all of the aerospace stocks sold off like immediately, and then all of them recovered pretty quickly, except for I think it was Tibalt, T H I B A L T. I'm not I'm not entirely sure on the name, and they were the manufacturer of the O ring. So somehow the market figured it out like almost immediately, and I don't know. I'll probably get some of those details wrong, but that's 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 an interesting. Point. I don't know. I don't know what you can draw from it, but it's just interesting to know. <laughs> That's not going to happen in a world of only indexers. That's true, but uh, you know, bring on that world. I, I can't wait for that. Yeah, I thought you said Dorsia before. Somebody, Mike Bartlett's got a comment up on the. I got a reservation at Dorsia. I got the best table, standing reservation. Oh no, it's Dorsey, like Pat. Should we uh, do some questions? Yeah, hit us with the Everybody questions. Everybody wants us to talk about Bitcoin. Here's my take on Bitcoin today. I think it's uh, – you're 
you're betting, in my opinion, on sound money. You probably have some optionality, but I think you have less historical precedent. I mean, that's where I'm at right now. So if the idea is around in 10 to 20 years, then I and it's something that people are willing to, you know, try to store value in, then you make a ton of money on it. Probably. I, I think it's interesting to listen to Real Vision. I was listening to them talk about it and like. I really liked how like they're very honest or at least my perception of very honest about how like they're straight up trading it and why they're trading it. And like that those have been very interesting conversations like uh, Rao Paul did one with. um, Oh, who the hell? What's her name? I should know her name. I don't know. Lynn Ann Alden or something like that. I don't know. But Lynn Alden, I don't know that that's an interesting conversation. Like I kind of get I get how they think of it. It's just. It's, I'm not there yet for me. I feel like we discuss this every week and every week people come in and say, talk about it. Like, what more can <laughs> we say? I like, like it. The, Jake's, price is going up. Jake's take on it is the, is the one that I agree with. You know, I, I'm sort of, I, well, I should probably let you talk about your take on it. But, yeah, I don't even know what my take is. Yeah. Oh, you no, know, when, you did, when you did the, all the companies that you could buy, right? Oh, oh yeah. no, no, no. I, I, mean, I mean, I'm sympathetic to the idea. I like the idea. But I don't have a view on gold i can't value gold i can't value euro dollars i have no idea in currencies i have no edge in bitcoin i'm just not going to play a game where i don't think i have an edge why why would i it's just pure speculation at that point if you're a speculator good luck to you i'm not one i'm trying to be an invincible industrialist i'm not trying to be a speculator hold it i don't care it's not an interesting subject because you're just guessing which way it's going to go i think it's interesting because it's like it is maybe the ultimate speculation tool because Pure speculation there there is nothing in which to compare it uh as a like there's no there's no dividend to compare it against there's no flow out of it to compare it there are no uh you know there's never going to be earnings in which to kind of anchor to reality and i find it to be fascinating because it's like Ponzi had to pay the original old investors with the new investors money. You don't even have to do that, right? Like this is, he would have creamed his shorts if he had the chance to <laughs> speculate on something like Bitcoin and, and con people with that. Like it's such a better instrument than, than previously has been created. I think my favorite, uh, <laughs> I'm probably getting this wrong, but it's something like, uh, imagine if idling your car to solve Sudoku puzzles, <laughs> which allowed you to buy heroin. <laughs> Uh, that's my favorite definition of it. I like. Uh, I I spoke to Tyrone uh, V. Ross. He'll that's coming out in not too long, and I do I'm like his that. take. I mean, there's. I have a huge blind spot in my life for the underbanked and unbanked, and I think he has some takes on what it could do for real time payments and how like you know transferring via bitcoin can actually get people paid in time to pay their rent and like very important things that could be solved through it and i agree that there are really smart minds that are working on how the technology can speed up you know payments and reduce uh total fees in the system and you know if that's what comes out of it then i think this will all be a good experience but i don't know what the price will be nobody who wants to talk about it wants to talk about that though they want to talk about where it's going that it's at thirty-seven thousand. it's going to a hundred thousand it's at a hundred thousand it's going to a million it's at a million it's going to 10 million that's what they want to talk yeah. about they don't want to talk about the actual use of it if you talk about the use of it like it's as useful as 
anything else out there really it's nothing it's no more or less useful than some fintech figuring yeah, out right. how to use catch yeah well that's that's why i tried to have somebody that i thought had something useful to say about it on the pod am i wrong because i no i well look i don't know if you i don't know what everybody is saying i i honestly stopped listening to preston pish because that's all he talked about for a little while and i actually like you preston i'm not trying to take a shot i just got tired of it um and so, like, Tyrone had a different view on it that that opened my mind for the reasons that you're talking about, Toby, because a lot of times people are talking about, like, stock to flow and the having cycle and this and that. He was like, no, this is what I think it can do for society. And I was like, all right, I'm down to listen to that. It was a good talk. I got so. a fun question here to uh, to move away. If you had to choose one investor to manage all your money, Massa, Chamath, Einhorn, how does Chamath get in there with Massa and Einhorn, honestly? No, no oh, disrespect to you, Chamath. I'm, I'm a big Actually, fan. Actually, Einhorn's the odd one out on those three. Well, Massa, like to get his, his sorry. His, well, here's here's how I th- here's how I think they're different. Massa has been around since before the dot com 1.0 bubble burst. He was he was the uh, you know, genius investor back then. So has Einhorn. Massa had his big run up and then bust in 2000. Einhorn's run kind of started in the late 1990s, but he had it really mid-2000s, up to 2010, and he's fallen off. Chamath is brand new. I like the way Chamath pitches. I like Chamath's ideas. I'm not trying to be disrespectful to Chamath. He's just, he's a little bit unproven at this point. It's Einhorn for me from here. Easy. I like underdogs, so I got to go Einhorn. Yeah, I'm in. I don't trust anybody that sits up in an auditorium and says, get as much money as you can. So Chamus out. And uh, then, you know, I'd, I I don't know enough about Massa. I guess I'd probably, I mean, Einhorn's the guy that I think I could stick with if stuff went wrong. And I think that that's probably the most important way to answer that. So I, I he's in 2011 <laughs> who have left. I'm just <laughs> All, I wouldn't be happy about it. All three value yeah. guys pick pick the value guys. So we've we've conf- yeah, it also depends how. Here's, here's a good one. Here's a good one for how do you build out your circle of competence? I don't know. I'll let you know when I find mine. <laughs> I, I do have some thoughts on that, and you and I have talked about it before. I think you, you you do have one area probably where you know more than anybody else. Whatever industry you're already in, you you probably know that really really well, and then you can probably move out horizontally and vertically and temporally into adjacent industries and get increasingly good at understanding things. There are some things that are not understandable at all and you just avoid those ones and don't worry about it and live your life really happily. Keep on looking at them, keep on trying to understand them. If you don't ever get there, don't worry about it. That's my view. Yeah, I I think when you look at like what's in my portfolio, they almost all came from a differentiated view on leverage, a differentiated view on customer psychology, or some sort of scale thesis. That I mean, that's like almost the entire portfolio. Is that QVC? Uh, that was psychology. And a differentiated view on the deck structure. The leverage as well, yeah. Yeah. But the psychology is what made me okay with the, with the debt. I think you need to take a, a both a top-down and bottom-up approach to this. So... One is learning the individual businesses, the unit economics, the kind of the micro economics of the business. At the same time, I think the top down part is studying different mental models that are helpful that, you know, Munger would kind of point you to looking for uh, analogs in 
large data sets like physics, biology, human history, because those things, I think, help speed up your ability to discern the bottom up part. Um, and you don't have to you probably don't have to do as much maybe to arrive at a reasonable conclusion if you have some top down tools as well. Yeah, I wanted to do a big research project. Uh, if anybody's interested in this, hit me up. But the, the idea was just to figure out, you know, of all the money spent in a business context or, or spent inside, I was going to say in, in the US, but globally, really, how does it break down by industry? And then who does it break down into in the industry? And who, who makes the most, who generates the most revenue? Who makes the most profit? Who has the highest return on invested capital? Who's growing the fastest? Because I think that that tells you. And then which industries sort of have the tailwind and which ones have a headwind? And which tailwinds are sort of permanent and built in and which headwinds are cyclical and you know may turn around at some stage? Because I think that that's the kind of top-down, that's as top-down macro as I would ever get because I think it's useful to know. Like I just don't, I have no idea about the scale of some of these industries. We talk all the time about market cap. So the market cap of energy, everybody knows, you know, is minuscule now and used to be quite big. I don't know if the underlying businesses have done the same. I, I think that probably at the top, the market cap flattered them and now at the bottom, the market cap understates how, how important they are to the economy. I'd just be interested to know. I don't, I don't know the answer off the top of my head. On what basis? I've been shocked at the operational, uh, the lack of, so revenues have fallen quite a bit, but expenses have fallen pretty fast too for a lot of the bigger energy companies. I've been shocked that there weren't, wasn't more operational leverage to the downside to kill them. Given just like you would think like, boy, this is heavy industry, right? Like there's probably a lot of operational leverage, a lot of fixed costs. And it's been more variable costs than I I would have thought. Lots of compensation. I don't know where. It, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure where it's got scrubbed off. This is the funny thing. When I graduated from uh, from law school, a lot of my friends went into energy because that was where energy was. Yeah, that's where you got paid stupid money to go and do uh, deals. And uh, I doubt that's where they're going now. <laughs> yeah, I mean Exxon's gross profit in 2009 was 43 billion. And today, well, let's go to 2019 because this year is sort of an ad back, ad back, whatever, uh, 25 billion. So, I mean, they, their gross profits decline substantially over time. 43 yeah, to 29. You think, yeah. yeah, but wouldn't you think it'd be like negative 29 given the like sort of the sentiment? And... Well, the market, the market prices, the market, the market values moves a lot more than that. Right. That's what I'm saying. Like it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. So I've got another good question here. Uh, how do you quantify the quality of management best? What are the main things you look for? I like to I I look at the cash flow statement and that like tells me the story of how these people operate. Like how do they think? Like what are they looking at? Um, and I you know, I mean you can after doing it for a while and I try to empathize that's like my other big thing I like to do is put myself in their shoes I try to imagine what the opportunity set looked like how do they spend money inside this business and would I do some that same thing what did what they do make sense to me um, knowing what they could know at that time period right over like time uh, so yeah, you're looking over, at series, over, yeah. uh, period series by period cash flow yeah. statements yeah yeah, yeah I, I like that that tells me everything I mean a lot of it just look at the investing cash flow line, see that that's negative, 
look at the free cash flow line, look at the compensation, look at the proxy to see how they're compensated. Make sure all of those things line up with what they're saying. You find that basically nothing passes that test. <laughs> Ouch. I wish you were more wrong about that statement. There's like a few hundred companies and everybody knows who they are. Yeah, I think you got to look at what they say they're going to do versus what they did. Um, for what it's worth, in 2009, Exxon, now this is 09, so multiples were depressed, traded at seven and a half times gross profit, and today 11.6 times gross profit. So the multiple on gross profit has actually expanded. Interesting. There you have it. It's just that the rest of the market has got more expensive. Is that why it's shrunk down so much? I mean, I don't know, man. I, I don't know oil. And look, to the Chamas stuff, right? Like I was saying uh, earlier, I mean, I, I like the guy. I like his story. I root for, you know, the immigrant story that wins. Like I am into that. But there's something about saying get as much money as you possibly can and then pitching mining ideas that I think like you get in trouble. I think at some point hubris can make you stumble. And it's uh, maybe you getting close to that point. Um, maybe it's not like maybe maybe that dude just continues to crush and he's like the next Buffett. I don't know. But talk about base rates. I mean, investing's tough. Do you guys want to take one on what do you consider a value trap? I mean, I've, we've done this a few times, but uh, what do you look at to see if it's a value trap? If the price is going to go down in the future, <laughs> that's the value trap. <laughs> that's how people define it. Did yeah. it work out or not? You buy it at a big discount, wind forward one year, it's still at a big discount, but the value's down lower than it was before. Or the revenue just keeps on marching up and the uh, the profit line keeps on going down. That's often a good signal that there's something coming that's nasty. Look at the free cash flow line. Free cash flow keeps on getting more and more negative, even if the revenue line's going up. They're just paying for the, they're just buying revenue. Bill, you want to have a chop at that one? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you got, um, I mean, cyclicals with low PEs, that's a good way to get to hammered. Uh, I think you guys are right. You know, I think, I don't know, you start seeing like, uh, consistently hitting numbers by a penny is probably a good yeah. thing to avoid. Um, you know, watch how proxy statements start to change and. You know, I don't, I don't know that there's like clear cut answers to a lot of these questions. You know, I think that's part of the issue. It's company specific. Didn't Jack Welsh, wasn't he kind of open about the fact that they'd go to the acquisition? Um, I forget the, there was some accounting adjustment that you could make to the acquisitions and then he'd go to his accounting team and he'd say, we need to make, we need to, we're, we're $27 million short this quarter, figure it out in the acquisitions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I read they he would like the managers would tell him like, "Hey, I've got 20 million accounting that I can release now if we need it." Yeah. Right? And that was like his version of how this is all like a good team. <laughs> <laughs> like they're all in on the well. It was it worked for a long time, right? Like Yeah, does anybody The, the bezel worked for yeah, a long time. It does. It always does. It works every single time until it stops working. And then everybody forgets that it, that there was such a thing, and we go back to business as normal. I mean, it takes about it takes five or ten years for that to happen. To be fair, that's something we've talked about offline. Uh, is that you 
now with like the scale of the tools and the interconnectedness of the world, it used to be if you were a snake oil salesman, you could move fast enough to stay ahead of the information and not get called out on it and like lynched or whatever. But now you can get so much bigger, but you probably only get one bite at the apple, right? It has to be a huge, huge bezel, huge con. <laughs> so I would, I would anticipate in a higher, highly interconnected world that we see bigger bezels, but yeah. you don't get to like do more of them. Um, so I don't, maybe that's may or may not be playing out in some companies today. Who knows? But uh, <laughs> we'll see. Which you is, don't well, know until the tide goes out, right? But dude, like I, I, I mean. I guess that we've had this debate before, but, you know, people would say that about Musk, but the other side of it is like, it's not hidden. His shareholders don't care. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they buy the vision. I, I mean, I've, I've said it's the golden age of selling dreams. You, it is. And, and yeah. I don't know, like, I, is that a snake oil salesman? Is that, the, is the line who's successful and who's not like I, these are not clear cut questions uh, beforehand. I don't think now some, some are, but you know, I don't know. Also, rather than re reciting stuff that people hear on podcasts, can people start going to source materials again, rather than just like the freaking narrative stuff that like, you know, somebody says something all of a sudden it's like, as if it's fact, find the, find some data people. Find data. Just we, and you know what? If people made money somewhere else, it doesn't mean they're smart somewhere else, right? It means they're smart in how they made money. One time. That's right. <laughs> so, like, let's not impute all this like political knowledge and all this other knowledge onto somebody that made money doing one thing one time. Like, and maybe only idolize the right things at the right time, right? Yeah. We're, anyway, we're, we're completely out of time, cents. but but Jack Ma, Jack Ma, where's Jack Ma? I, I heard there was a sighting of him. Also, it's not something to joke about. I do feel like that's some messed up stuff. Somebody said he was on Bloomberg. I saw something like the his little green light was on Bloomberg, but that just he's probably got the browser open. I don't know. Yeah, well, I don't know, man. I hope he's okay. I know nothing about it. I'm not trying to be on China's radar. No, we don't want to deal with... We're not... Uh... Pulse Singer. We're not dealing with sovereigns. YouTube's going to yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. right. YouTube's going to demonetize us for that one, probably. Yeah. Yep. All right, guys. Yeah, we're we're going to have to pay money. them now for carriage. Yeah. This was fun. Can't wait for uh, 2021. Big, uh, big things are happening. It's going to be fun. Big projects. Uh, we'll see. Oh, you next by the week. way, quick shout out to uh, RW who sent me a box of peanut brittle for Christmas, and I. <laughs> I smashed the whole thing in like a two days, and uh, so I appreciate it. Oh, yeah. C's. C's was uh, so good. Pl plenty of. All right. Pl plenty of. Uh, they're like. There's, there's nothing healthy about C's, but they taste great. Well, happy new year to everybody. I hope you enjoy the ads. We get none of the money. <laughs> See you guys next week. Ciao. Cheers. Shake it up, stop when the clock gets 13. See one, one, two, three, three, four. Cause, 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 no one can do it like we do it, like we do it, like we do it. Cause no one can do it like we do it, like we do it, like we do it. Cause no one